just a few moments ago, we did as what Brother Chuck said, read, from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we spoke to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and Lord willing, we each made melody in our hearts to the Lord. For those of you who are visiting with us, I know that many times we have visitors who come and they notice a distinct difference between what we practice and what many other religious groups practice in our community with regards to music. I've had people come as they have left the building and spoken to me and made comments such as, I did not know that you folks didn't use pianos, but the singing was beautiful. I've had people come and say, do you folks partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week or every Sunday? And I will say, yes, we do. People sometimes are coming to us and they observe things and they may not understand. In order to attract more people and not stand out as being different, some of the congregations of the Lord's Church are now choosing to introduce musical instruments into their worship. Just three weeks ago, in Prattville, Alabama, the Hunter Hills Congregation Eldership sent a letter to the congregation asking them if they wanted to add a service in which instrumental music would be used in their worship. And the truth is, is that you and I have to realize we need to address those questions. There are things that come to people's minds and when you go to 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, the Bible says, But sanctify in your hearts Christ Jesus as Lord, being ready always to give an answer to every man that asks the reason of hope that is within you, yet with meekness and fear. We should not assume that everybody understands. In fact, some may be curious and say, why don't you use them? I'd like to point out to you that sometimes people just really may not understand everything that's going on and why it's taking place. I want to use two illustrations as we introduce our lesson this morning. If you want to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis to chapter 21, I want to begin with verse 25 and read through verse 31. Now this passage is not about music, but I want to use it to introduce the thought if you'll remember, when Abraham went to settle in the promised land, he went down toward the area of Gerar, and there was a king there by the name of Abimelech. And as you pick up reading in verse 25, Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of the well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor have I heard of it till today. Now, folks, stop there for just a moment. Here's a situation where there's a problem. There's a difficulty between Abraham and Abimelech. And Abraham is rebuking Abimelech, and he says, You ought not be doing it. Abimelech said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand who did this. 
This is the first time I've heard of it today, and you didn't tell me anything. Folks, let me explain why I'm preaching this lesson this morning. I don't want anyone to ever go to the day of judgment and say, you didn't tell me that we ought to do this or not do that. We don't want to be like this situation. Follow as you continue. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. The two of them made a covenant, and Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? Here's another thing I don't understand. Abraham, explain that to me. And he said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be a witness that I have dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. You see, sometimes you have to explain things. You have to explain why you're doing something, why you're not doing something, what people do not understand. Now let me go to a second passage. If you go to the book of Joshua, to chapter 4, I want to begin with verse 20 and read through verse 24. The children of Israel have moved into or they're going to move into the promised land. And the text says, And those stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in the time to come, What are these stones? Then you shall say to your children, or let your, shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over the Jordan on dry land, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan until you had crossed over, and the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord, the hand of the Lord, that is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord God forever. Now, the question will come from the children. What do these stones mean? Some of our children have friends who attend other religious groups. And they go and they hear what is participated in those churches. And they come back and they are going to ask the question, Why do we do what we do? Mama and Daddy, it's your responsibility to be ready to answer those questions. Why do we do or not do what we're doing. So this morning what I want to do is I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about church music history. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but I do want to explain a little bit. Number two, I want to talk about confusion about church music. Why many people think various things. And then number three, the correct teaching on it. Let's begin first of all with history. History does not determine practice, but it does help us understand. Just because your mother and your daddy did something doesn't mean that you're supposed to do it. Just because you grew up doing something or not doing something is not in and of itself proof. The 1950s, the 1500s, the 500s, none of those are going back far enough. You need to go all the way back to the Bible and the directions that are given there. But it does explain why 
one does something, and it can identify departures from the truth. I can look back and see people. This morning, I read a term paper, if you want to call it that, that a guy had written a few years ago about the establishment of Texas Christian University. If you haven't read the background behind that, I'd encourage you to read it. Really interesting details behind the background. Uh, You may not know that those brethren left the Lord's Church about a hundred and something years ago, uh, Texas Christian University. Some believe that the early church used instruments in their worship, and they did not. In fact, if you start looking at the first instance of their use was in 670 A.D., You're talking about the 7th century, not the 1st century. And it was introduced in the Roman Catholic Church by Pope Vitalian I who put it in and he saw that it created such controversy and such division, he stopped it immediately. And it's another 130 years by the time you get to A.D. 800 when it again was reintroduced and it brought swift protest there. In fact, if you study church history, you will notice around the 800s began this division between the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox churches, which Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and those Orthodox churches still do not use instrumental music in their worship at all. If you travel to the Bible lands, you will go to a number of different buildings and they'll say, this is a Roman Catholic building or this is an Orthodox building. Maybe Greek Orthodox, maybe Russian Orthodox. But when you go in, you'll notice there's no instruments there because they do not believe they're scriptural to be used. One thing that many people find interesting is that the Reformers, those who came along in the 1500s, 1600s, and 1700s, those who were saying that the Roman Catholic Church has departed from the Bible, they're doing things they ought not do, that they opposed it as well. Martin Luther said that the organ in the worship of God is an ensign of Baal. Or John Calvin, who established Presbyterianism, says, it, that is, the organ is no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting of tapers, that's candles, revival of other shadows of the law, the Roman Catholics borrowed it from the Jews. Or John Wesley, the one who established the Methodist Church, says, I have no objection to the organ in our chapels, provided that it is neither heard nor seen. He didn't believe you ought to have it at all. Charles Spurgeon, who was one of the famous Baptists of that time, when he asked why he didn't use the organ in worship, said, he pointed to 1 Corinthians 14, 15, I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding also. He then said, I would just as soon pray to God with machinery as to sing to God with machinery. Adam Clark, who many of you own his commentary, who was a Methodist, said, I am an old man and an old minister, and I here declare that I have never known instrumental music to be productive of any good 
in the worship of God and have reason to believe that it has been the production of much evil. Music is a science I esteem and admire, but instruments of music in the house of God I abominate and abhor. This is the abuse of worship of the infinite spirit who requires his followers to worship him in spirit and in truth. I think that's pretty plain, pretty clear. You don't see it in the beginning. You see it when it's introduced, producing division. You find that the reformers said they're not going to be a part of it. Then his men began to try to go back to the Bible. There were a number of restorers, not reformers, restorers, who came along and they began to say, we need to go back and do Bible things in Bible ways. None of them used the instrument at all. In fact, among those who were trying to restore New Testament Christianity, the first introduction was in Midway, Kentucky in 1859-1860, and there it produced the protest of the members as well. Many of you may or may not know that those who worshipped using instruments became known as the Christian church. Those who did not use instrument were known as churches of Christ. Not as a denominational title, but the 1906 census of the United States separated them for the first time and they were separated over the use of instrumental music and the missionary societies. And the truth is, if you look at instrumental music, it's always been a divisive issue. But now you've moved to understand a little bit more about why people do or do not believe that a person should use instruments. And when people come into our assemblies, some of them come with confusion as to why we do not use them. Some think we just don't like instruments. That we don't like, for instance, a piano or an organ. We don't like the sound of a guitar or something else. You know that that's the furthest thing from the truth. Because I can tell you personally, I enjoy instrumental music with no singing. But that's not a part of the worship. It's not a, a matter of preference. Others along that same line think that we like a cappella. And if you don't know what the word a cappella means, it means according to the style of the chapel or without instruments is the way it's used that we like that better. I love a cappella music, but that's not the reason why. Now, here's the reason why many people think that we do not use instrumental music. Some believe it's because it's a human tradition, that it is just something that we have chosen to not do is a part of our identification, is the part that set us apart from everybody else to say, we just do that because it's some sort of a human tradition. I'm going to try to deal with that a little bit more in a minute. And many are confused as to why they believe it would be acceptable to God. I have sat and discussed with people in a very frank and open discussion about why they believe that it is right, why it is acceptable. And the first one is they will point back to the Old Testament. 
they'll say, if you go back to that Old Testament, you will find people in the Old Testament using instruments of music. And it's not my point to prove that at this point, simply to say to you that I'll grant that. But there are some things that were permitted at one time in the Old Testament that were not permitted later. Let me give you an illustration or two. If you go to the book of Leviticus, to chapter 2, verse 11, here's what God said through Moses. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. You shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering of the Lord made by fire. Is that plain or clear about leaven? No leaven. Chapter 6, verse 17, it shall be baked shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of the, my offerings made by fire. It is most holy like the sin offering and the trespass offering. Again, no leaven. Leviticus 23, verse 17. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first, first fruits of the Lord. God said with regards to those offerings made by fire, no leaven at all. Later on at a different feast, he said, though, that if it is to be brought from home, you are to bake it with leaven. You mean sometimes leaven was accepted, other times leaven was not accepted? That's correct. What about circumcision? God gave the right, R-I-T-E, of circumcision to Abraham and to his descendants. By the time you get to Moses, God had chosen Moses to be the leader of his people. You know what Moses had not done? He had not circumcised his own children. In Exodus chapter 4, it came to pass on the way of at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. And Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. You didn't do it, Moses. God almost killed Moses because Moses didn't circumcise his son. And yet by the time we get to the New Testament, Paul says, Indeed, I, Paul... Say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who have attempted to be justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Was circumcision a part of the Old Testament? Yes, so much that God would even kill Moses over it. What about the New Testament? No. It's not a part of it. You who are trying to be justified by that Old Testament law, you're fallen from grace. You can't go back to the Old Testament and say, let me just get a part of this here or a part of that there and bring it to the New Testament and say, okay, because it's there, I can do it here. just simply can't do that. Let me point out to you that even under the same covenant, God at one time would command something and at the next time forbid it. I'll give you an illustration. Exodus 17, verse 6. 
children of Israel are just striking out on their journey. They've just left Egypt. And God tells Moses, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. You shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the Lord, or in sight of the elders of Israel. God said, Strike it. Jump fast forward to Numbers chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take a rod, you and your brother Aaron, and gather the congregation to Israel, or together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield water. You mean God said do something different? Yes. If you go a little bit further to chapter 20, verses 11 and 12, because Moses struck that rock, he did not get to go into the promised land. What? God had told him earlier, it's all right to strike the rock. In fact, that's what you've got to do. This time he tells him to speak to the rock. And that failure kept him from going to the promised land. Some people say, well, if it wasn't in the Old Testament, but it's going to be in heaven. There's going to be instruments in heaven. Don't you know that Revelation chapter 5, chapter 14, listen to Revelation chapter 5. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, now listen carefully, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Someone says, right there it is. Every one of them's got a harp, and you're sure they're going to play that harp. Are you sure they're going to do that? Because what else goes along with it? And the golden bowls full of incense. Are we going to go buy some gold bowls and put them up here and have incense and burn incense in front of the congregation as well? So that you not only can have the hearing, but the smelling as well? And you say, oh, no, no, you wouldn't do that. Because there he says, which are the prayers of the saints. Oh, you mean the book of Revelation is a figurative book? Yes. Do I expect to see harps in heaven? Do I expect to see literal street of gold and a sea of glass? Or are those figures of speech to help me understand? Revelation 14 verse 2 says, And I heard a voice from heaven, the voice like of many waters, like the voice of a loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. What you're hearing there is, again, an illustration. It's a figurative language because heaven's a spiritual place, not a physical one. And somebody says, but I can do it at home. If I can play my piano at home, why can't we do it in church? Well, there's a lot of things that are acceptable at home which would be out of place in services. You may like to watch football games on Saturday or Sunday afternoon. And you might like to eat it with popcorn and soft drinks. But that's not the place here. You're not going to put cookies on the Lord's table because the Lord's told us what to put on His table. Hand washing is something that every mother will tell her child to do before they eat. You go wash your hands, you go wash your hands. Because they're concerned about hygiene. 
But you go to Mark chapter 7 and verse 4, and Jesus said, When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. And then you drop down to verses 8 and 9. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. And you say, well, what is that? The washing of pitchers and cups. And he says, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. You see, people sometimes take things from home, from other places, and they want to bring them into the church. And Jesus said, that's not the place for them. Some people say, but don't you understand it's just an aid? It helps. Now I'm going to tell you, just to be blunt, what several people who are proponents of instrumental music have told me. Say, Do you know if we didn't have the piano to cover up our bad singing, how bad it would sound? I've heard that said several times. That the, the piano really helps us be able to sing better. An aid does not change what is being done. Like if I wear glasses, all those glasses do is help me to see better, but I am still just seeing. That's what they're doing. That's an aid. Some of you have hearing aids, which amplifies the, the sound but it doesn't change what you're doing. It simply aids with it. On the other hand, an addition is something that could be done by itself. It's something of a different type. Everybody knows when you have instrumental music, you can have instrumental music or vocal music or both of them. And if you can do it by itself, then it's an addition and not an aid. But then somebody says the Bible doesn't say don't do it. Well, I would challenge that statement. I think the Bible says don't do it. You mean to say there's a passage of Scripture which says thou shalt not use instrumental music? I didn't say that. But even children understand the necessity of getting permission. Your parents... When you get 16 years old, send you to the grocery store and they hand you a $20 bill and say, we need a gallon of milk, bring a gallon of milk home. And while you're there at the grocery store, you say, hey, I got $20, milk's $3, I can buy $17 more worth of candy bars. No, because you know when you get back home, your parents are going to say, where's my change? Well, you didn't say don't buy it. But didn't you understand when I gave you what I wanted, that's what I expected? The Bible warns against tampering with God's plan. I could give you several illustrations, but I'm going to run out of time, so just let me briefly run through these. First Chronicles 13. The children of Israel transported the Ark of the Covenant by means of a cart. Uzzah reached out to touch the ark when the oxen stumbled and God struck him dead. They understood that they didn't do it right according to 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 13. 
You have to follow God's plan. Follow it carefully. Revelation 22, 18 and 19 warns against adding to or taking away from. 2 John 9 warns against going too far, transgressing. And Galatians 1, 6 through 9 warns against changing or perverting that. Very briefly, correct teaching on church music. It's a part of God's plan that reflects a joyful heart. James 5, verse 13, Is anyone you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. It's a simple part of our worship. Acts 16, 25, they were singing praises at midnight, hymns at midnight. 1 Corinthians 14, 15, we've already referred to it. Sing with the Spirit and with the understanding. Ephesians 5, 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns, singing with grace in your hearts. And then Hebrews 2.12, he says, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. If I summarize all that together, worship is not in a place. It's with the people. When Jesus dealt with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, she had said, are we going to worship in Jerusalem or are we going to worship this mountain? Jesus said, neither. He said, it's going to be with the person. John 4, 20 and 21, 23 and 24. It involves words which engage the mind, which in turn engage the heart. Those words which you and I sing should register in our minds and with those thoughts in our minds they should engage our hearts and these things are done to or for one another those one another passages were when I sing I encourage you when you sing you encourage me you teach me and the joy is, and the melody is made in the heart the instrumental music issue is really a Bible authority issue what can I do or what, more accurately, what may I do or what may I not do in religion? It's not determined by me. It's not determined by all of us together. It's determined by what God has instructed us. And you have to always respect to God and to come to Him on His terms. This morning, I don't know if what your heart is. Each of you know your own heart. And you know whether or not you are a Christian. You know whether or not you have obeyed the gospel plan of salvation by believing in Jesus, repenting of your sins, confessing that faith, and being baptized. If you've not done that, that was God's plan to save you, and you've got to follow that plan. We're ready for you this morning. If you want to be obedient to the gospel, their garments ready, the water is ready. It's your choice. And if you are one of God's children and you need to come back and be restored, we urge you to do that. While together we stand and sing.